We're going to be in John chapter 10 this morning. I want to encourage you to turn there. And uh, let me pray for us as we uh, go into the Word of God and uh, see what the Lord has to say for us about where we look for life and what it means to follow Him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you for your grace to us and the way you provide for us day by day, Lord. Uh, There's so many ways that you um, supply our need. Before we ask, Lord, you know our needs. You uh, providentially care for each of us individually, Lord, and and us as as a group. And so, God, I pray as we look to your word and think about who and what we follow, Lord, in our life, what's primary, uh, what we look to for life and meaning and joy, Lord. I pray that you'd reveal things in our heart, help us understand, God, what is there that may be um, competing with you and us looking to you. And God, I do pray for this church community. I've heard so much about them, Lord, I haven't been here before. Uh, I pray, God, that you guide them in uh, their pastoral search, that you provide for their needs in the season. And that, God, you uh, put them, uh, continue to put them as a light in this community. Uh, Hollister's growing um, day by day, Lord. More and more people are coming and moving here. And, Lord, what a great opportunity for the gospel to go out, for people to be discipled. And so, Lord, uh, supply for their needs, guide their steps. And, Lord, we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Um, so, as uh, Michael said, I have five kids. Uh, we have three bio kids. We adopted two. And, and it's been, like, kind of a long journey uh, along the way for how we went from having, you know, one kid to five kids. It happened in four years, and it was pretty pretty crazy. Um, but again, adoption helps with that, you know. So, um, but we, uh, along the way, about seven years ago, my, my middle daughter, she was our second born, but our middle daughter is now 11 years old. But about seven years ago, she had the opportunity to be a flower girl at a wedding. So she was uh, four years old, and we got invited to, again, doing youth ministry for about 10 years I had the opportunity to do lots of weddings for uh, different students who graduated through the program. And so one of them was getting married at an old church in Piedmont up near Oakland, California. And so uh, I got to officiate the wedding, and it was cool seeing my daughter Katie so excited. She was the only other person allowed to wear white that day. Uh, and got to walk down the aisle with uh, the ring bearer, Teddy, who was a couple years younger than her. And it was a great experience. Uh, took my whole family up for the wedding, and all my kids were wiped out at the end of the day. You know, as little kids, if you've ever been to a wedding with little kids, they love the dance floor and they love the party afterwards. And as a parent, we were just exhausted wrangling them the whole time. But uh, we were wiped out from the long day and uh, our kids all fell asleep in the, in the car on the way home, sound asleep. And my daughter, Katie, she uh, was clutching the bouquet of flowers that she got to have as a ring bearer. And so we get home, and I'm picking the, kid, picking the kids up, bringing them in the house. They have that, 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 that like lifeless weight to them, you know, when they go boneless, and they just like, hear they're heavy. Picking them in, and she's clutching the flowers. And so uh, my wife and I aren't flower people. We're not, like, we're not flower people. It's been a blessing in our marriage, you know, as far as expectations go with, like, Valentine's Day and stuff, and Mother's Day. It's been a blessing. Um, they're beautiful, but there's just one big problem with flowers. Uh, they don't last very long. They don't last very long. And so we plan on keeping the bouquet of flowers for a few days and then tossing it out uh, when they started to wilt and go black and all that stuff. But the day after the wedding, my daughter Katie was insistent that we ought to plant the flowers. We ought to plant the flowers in the backyard. And you know the problem with this, right? You can't just plant cut flowers in the ground and expect them to grow. And we tried explaining it to our four-year-old. If you tried explaining something to a four-year-old before, it's, uh, it's easier said than done. But we tried explaining it to our four-year-old. 
Katie, they look great now, but they're actually not alive. They look great now, but they're actually not alive. You see, if we plant them, they're just going to shrivel and get gross. And she didn't understand that this beautiful thing can no longer be living. That they were decaying, and that in a matter of days, no matter how much we watered them, they would lose their petals, they would turn black. And so we had this big scientific explanation about how, what was going to happen. But the main idea I was trying to communicate to her is something I think our text of Scripture communicates to us today, is that um, these flowers were cut off from their source of life. They were cut off from their source of life. Once they were removed from the dirt and cut at the roots, they began the slow process of dying. And though they still looked beautiful, unless they could be miraculously restored to their source of life, they would decay. And this is where each of us are or were before we put our faith in Jesus and followed him. Uh, God made humanity in his image in relationship with him and because of the effect of sin, we're all cut off from our source of life. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. So you may look good right now, maybe even beautiful, but because you're cut off from your source of life, you're in the slow process of decay and in need of life. And Ephesians 2, 4 goes on to offer so much hope, but God being rich in mercy, he made us alive together with Christ. And so there are a handful of verses in, in the Gospels in particular where Jesus tells us exactly why he came. There are a handful of times where he is very direct and says, I came for this reason. And today's passage has one of those verses in it. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And the word abundantly means overflowing. It's this image of like a cup or a cone of ice cream piled higher than it should be. It's not the bare minimum. It's overwhelming, overflowing, abundant life. And the word here for life is not the word that describes our physical life. That's bios, biology. It's the word that describes your spiritual life, zoe. The idea of life, meaning, everlasting, eternity. It extends, uh, it starts here and now and extends on for eternity. And so in our passage today, Jesus uses the image of being a shepherd who leads his people to life by laying down his own. And so I want us to see that this morning, that Jesus is the good shepherd and following him leads to overflowing life. And I want to look at three different things along the way as we interact with the passage. First, Jesus as the good shepherd has infinite and intimate knowledge of his sheep. He has infinite and intimate knowledge of his sheep. Second thing is that he leads them. He leads them to life. He has a plan, a direction, a goal for his sheep. He leads them to life. And finally, he does that by laying down his own. So he has infinite and infinite knowledge of his sheep. He leads them to life by laying down his own. And I hope that our time today will challenge you to consider who you're following, what voices you're listening to, and what it means that Christ joyfully laid down his life for the sheep. Let's look at uh, John 10, verse 1 to 6. The word of the Lord says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. 
A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. In order to understand the surpassing goodness of Jesus, the first we have to imagine a different kind of world. A world without streetlights and cars and grocery stores or cell phones or computers or things buzzing all over the place. Uh, if I'm at my work computer I, and I get a message, I get buzzed three times. My computer, my watch, my phone. That was not their world. And it wasn't necessarily a simpler time, but it was a time with less noise. As you walked the countryside, you would see hillsides scattered with shepherds and sheep. And each shepherd would have about a 20-mile radius where they would use that for grazing and watering the sheep. And unlike our view of shepherding today, where we kind of imagine, you know, a, a a group of sheep out, a flock of sheep, and then a dog driving the sheep from place to place. In their world, the shepherd would lead them out in front, calling them by name, often having a sing-songy way that he would call the sheep to follow him. And each day, they'd be led to a place of rest and to still waters. And at night, the shepherd would bring them back to the sheepfold for safety and security. And so Jesus' original audience would be super familiar with this image. They would know what this meant. It was a normal part of their life, and the image of a shepherd was used throughout the Hebrew scriptures to talk about God and his relationship with his people. God famously described himself as shepherd in Psalm 23. The shepherd's psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He rebukes Israel's leaders in Ezekiel 34 for being bad shepherds and promises to be their shepherd. Some of Israel's most important leaders were shepherds like Moses and King David and the first people to hear the good news of the birth of Jesus, a group of shepherds. So Jesus tells us all this expectation in the Hebrew scripture, all this imagery for God's leading of them, it's all fulfilled in him, that he is the good shepherd that they longed for. And we learn how Jesus leads and how he exercises authority. It's rooted in infinite and intimate knowledge of his sheep, leading them through sacrificial love and action. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he had just healed a man who was born blind from birth, John 9. He had healed this man born blind from birth, uh, and this formerly blind man went through this whole courtroom scene where the religious leaders were grilling them on Jesus and what Jesus was all about, because Jesus broke their man-made rules around the Sabbath, around what it meant to observe and worship God on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath was a day where you were not supposed to work, but find opportunities to worship and rest. And instead of being amazed at him healing this blind man, instead of saying, what did you do? This is amazing. You healed a man born blind. That's never happened. They instead were ticked off because Jesus didn't follow their rules. The, their man-made rules around how one ought to observe the Sabbath. He didn't fit their understanding of what that meant. And so John 10 in a lot of ways, it's Jesus' response to their accusations about him. They're trying to pin him as a sinner, as someone who is leading the people astray. They're trying to say that Jesus is a bad shepherd, a false shepherd. But Jesus' response to the Pharisees shows that they're not the shepherds of Israel because Jesus himself calls them thieves and robbers. And so the Pharisees who were the popular religious leaders of the day, did not hear the voice of Jesus, they did not have a relationship with Jesus. And even more than that, Jesus tells the crowd they were not good shepherds of God's people. They didn't care for the flock. 
they were using the flock for their own gain. And they'd rather have this man stay born blind than to be healed. Because with each miracle that Jesus did, they saw their power slipping away. And so Jesus uses the image to challenge the crowd to think about the question, who are you following? Who are you following? And the kind of relationship that Jesus has with his people is best described as infinite and intimate. It's infinite in that his knowledge of his sheep has no limit. And it's intimate in that it's personal and particular, meaning, yes, you. If you follow Jesus, he has this kind of knowledge about you. He doesn't just love theoretical people. He doesn't just have intimate knowledge about theoretical people. He has love for particular people, including you and me. And this knowledge he has, this love leads him to lay down his life. And so we see it in three ways in this his first idea of his infinite and intimate knowledge, this relationship that God has is not sterile or heartless, but it's full of life and joy. And we see it in three ways. First, he tells us that his sheep know his voice. They hear his voice, they know it. They listen to him and respond to his word. And so the Pharisees could not recognize Jesus' voice because they weren't his sheep. And we all know the voice of those we love and those who love us. I remember being in a crowded room. Uh, I was graduating Bible college, seminary, and my, my firstborn son was only about two months old, and the room was about 400 people deep, like just big room filled with people, lots of noise, and I was up front in the, you know, cap and gown, up in the front, everyone's chattering, and all of a sudden I hear a baby crying, and I know it's mine, in the back of the room. We are designed to recognize the voice of those we know and love. Do you know that a child in the womb can recognize the voice of their mother and father around 32 weeks? Not to mention that when born, a newborn immediately looks for a face. They're wired to, for recognition. It's why babies have no problem staring at you. It's, it's awkward, it's weird, but they just have no problem just looking at you and like their heads bobbing around, you know? Uh, they, they're wired to look for recognition. We're wired as people to be known and loved. And human beings are made to know and be known. And so Jesus' sheep hear his voice. They listen to him because he knows them and leads them. And so Jesus has made it possible for us to know God's character in a deeper and more intimate way. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, it means that he's opened your ears to hear him. I think one of the frustrations with the modern world we're in is that we're bombarded with voices all around us. And Jesus' words here tell us that who we listen to is not neutral. Who we listen to shapes us and forms us that we're following the voices we listen to. And there are voices who are thieves. And later on, Jesus will say there are voices that are hired hands who look good but want to gain from us and don't care about us. And so who do you listen to? What voices do you hear? When you're trying to make sense of current events in the world, when you're trying to understand uh, what you're experiencing or how to handle things like politics or pandemics, are we quicker to look to our favorite voice out there? People who confirm our opinions or our favorite news source, or do we interpret everything we experience through the voice of the Good Shepherd? Do we first try and figure out what God has to say about something? Now, If what Jesus says here is true about the thief and the hired hand, the thief who wants to rob you and steal and take from you, or the hired hand who's there to, to gain from you, 
The world, even the parts of the world we agree with politically and socially, have an agenda for us. They want to gain from us at some level. And their commitment level to us is really shallow. And we'll see that as we unpack the scripture more and more. But I think it's really hard for us to hear the voice of the shepherd, the good shepherd, because of two barriers today that we experience that might be unique to the world that uh, was not unique to the people that Jesus was speaking to. Well, in some ways it was, but in one way it's not. First, um, we're surrounded by voices that are competing for our attention in a very unique and different way. Uh, Do you know what the number one problem YouTube faces as a company? It's not lack of content. It's having too much content. Uh, They have to rapidly expand their data centers to store all the video being produced. There are 500 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute. Minutes of the day. And that's just one content platform, not counting other content platforms, not counting news sources, network sources, social media. We all have various voices that we listen to, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you'd be well served to ask the question, are these voices helping me hear the voice of the Good Shepherd? Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But that's the question we should be asking, does this voice help me hear the voice of the Good Shepherd? And the second problem we face, we're not just surrounded by voices, but there's an internal problem that we have itching ears. We have itching ears. The human ear, unchecked, wants to seek out voices that confirm what we already think. It's called confirmation bias. Paul calls this itching ears in 2 Timothy 3.3. In the last days, there are people with itching ears who will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. Now, when Paul said this, he was talking about the church, those who would depart from the faith, turning away from the good shepherd, So Jesus tells us, shows us that God wants to lead his people in an intimate and infinite way, a personal way, where our ears are tuned to his voice and we closely follow him. His sheep will hear him and they'll stick with him. And so they hear his voice. That's the first way we see that he leads in an intimate and infinite way. Second thing is, not only do his sheep hear his voice, but they know he knows his sheep by name. He knows his sheep by name. And this seems hard to believe, but it's true. Shepherds of the ancient Near East would know their sheep by name, and they could pick them out of a crowd. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says this, To him the gatekeeper opens the sheep, hears his voice, he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. In the ancient world, when it was time for your sheep to sleep in a safe and secure way, the shepherd would lead them to a sheepfold. It was a, a large, walled, round enclosure, some with a, a roof on top, others just with a doorway going through. Uh, and the sheep would go in where they'd be safe from predators while the sheep slept. It was a place of safety and security, guarded by a gatekeeper. And most of the sheepfolds would be shared by multiple shepherds at one time. Now, as a Western person, I see problems with this. How do I know my property from your property? If we all have sheep in the same sheepfold, how do I know which ones are mine? Because honestly, all sheep look the same. And so what the shepherd here says about, the, about his role with the sheep is he calls them by name. He knows them by name. And the shepherd could pick his sheep out of a crowd because the sheep heard his voice and he knew them. And so he'd call out Fluffy, Snowball, Lammy, Sean, and they would follow after him. And look at verse 5. They wouldn't budge for a stranger. They wouldn't move for a stranger. It's normal for shepherds to know their sheep. How much more does God know his people? 
Now look at verse 14 and 15. We haven't read this text yet, but look at verse 14 and 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And what's the comparison? Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And this is amazing because the quality relationship Jesus offers his people is similar to the quality relationship he has with the Father. This means that he knows us in that infinite and intimate way, and he wants to be known by us. And this is spectacular because God the Father and God the Son share unbroken fellowship for eternity. Now, it's not going to be the same type of knowledge, but this is the closest comparison Jesus can give us. It's that same unbroken fellowship the Father and the Son experience for eternity, marked by infinite and intimate knowledge. We're invited into that sort of life and relationship with Jesus when we follow him as the good shepherd. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus would highlight his relationship with God the Father, how he hears the Father's voice. He does the Father's will. He's beloved by the Father. And as believers, we have such a relationship through Christ. He knows what keeps us awake at night, even last night. He knows that. He knows what we long for. He knows what pushes your buttons. He knows how old we are to the second, and we'll pass from this world to the next. He knows all these things, things that would keep many of us, that we keep hidden. And that does not diminish his love. Even though he knows us infinitely, his knowledge of us is not bound. It does not diminish his love. But rather draws his love to the sheep so much so that he would lay down his life. Luke 12, verse 7 says he knows the numbers of hairs on our head. Matthew 6, 8 says he knows what we need before we ask him. Psalm 139 talks about how much he's appointed for us the days that we would live. And each time the Bible highlights this kind of information about what God knows about us, it's communicate to us that God will provide. And why would God say this so much unless we're tempted to not believe it? Unless we're tempted to not believe that he'll provide for us. And so God knows how you've loved others and how you've hated. He knows how you've been faithful and how you've been given into sin. And he loves you anyways. And as we move through this passage, we'll see again and again that he's not looking for an excuse to leave you or abandon you. A shepherd helps their sheep, brings them to a place of health and rest, and that's what God's doing in your life right now if you belong to Christ. He's doing all things to bring you to a place of health and rest. And so the sheep hear his voice, and he knows them by name. And finally, he demonstrates this infinite and intimate knowledge in the how he leads the sheep. He does not lead from far off. He goes out in front and side by side. He's in close proximity. He knows where he's going and following him leads somewhere good. Psalm 23, 1 and 2 says this, The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus' hearers would have connected this to Christ when he called himself the good shepherd that he's the Lord who leads them to green pastures and to still waters to restore their soul. He leads them to life. And so let's explore that more 
Second thing, he leads them to life. He has infinite, intimate knowledge, and he leads them to life. Verse 6 told us that the religious leaders did not understand him. How could they? They weren't his sheep. But he explains further so his sheep would understand and know the way the shepherd cares for his flock. Look at verse 7. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Not only does he go through the sheepfold door to call his sheep by name, but he is the door. The gatekeeper, the one in charge, would open and close the door of the enclosure. He had the job of sleeping in front of the door at night. Any thief or wolf trying to get in would have to step over the gatekeeper. Uh, I was a student ministry director for 10 years. We mentioned that before, and uh, I was in that world for quite a long time, and I've been um, kind of overseeing family ministries and discipleship at our church for the last 10 years. But I was a student ministry pastor for 10 years, and that meant a lot of weekends away at camp and weeks away at camp with students. And we required uh, students to fill out a medical release form ahead of time uh, with insurance information and emergency contact stuff, things like that. But my favorite line on the medical release form was, is there anything that we should know that was not asked on this form? Okay, so you get some things there about like allergies and stuff too, or some things that are kind of boring or whatever, but like, but there was one time I got a form back and it said, sleepwalking. Sleepwalking, and my first thought was like, oh, this could be interesting. And we were going to a weekend camp as a junior high student at the time, actually. Uh, it's more common in kids than adults to sleepwalk, but it's, it sounds like people get up while they're asleep, and they walk around and do stuff they don't remember. And so I pulled aside the leader for that cabin, and I said, you have one job this whole weekend. You need to sleep in front of the door. If that kid's up and awake, I want him falling and tripping over your body before he gets out of this cabin. Anyways, nothing happened that weekend, but it was one of those eventful things where I thought about like safety and security, someone being, someone blocking the door, sleeping in front of the door, and so the gatekeeper had that job. The sheep can't get in, can't get out unless they step over his body first. And so Jesus is saying that he's the door for the sheep. Why? Verse 8, verse 9. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In order to find rest from danger, the sheep would have to enter through the door. In order to find green pastures and still waters, they have to exit through the door. That Jesus protects and provides for his sheep. Jesus, his sheep go into salvation through him. They don't find salvation through thieves and robbers with a hired hand. And he says, all who came before him were thieves and robbers. He's not talking about Moses or the prophets. He's talking about false messiahs and the religious leaders of the day, those voices that would draw them away from life, that would draw them towards death. Those who promised freedom and life, but they were like the religious leaders in John 9. They wanted to use and control the sheep. So Jesus had the opposite desire for his sheep. He's the door, and going through the door leads to salvation that's described in Psalm 23. He leads his sheep to pasture and to still waters and to rest for their soul to be restored. And he says it clearly in verse 10. John 10, 10. I, I came. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came. They may have life and have it abundantly. Psalm 23, 5 says, My cup overflows. 
cup overflows. He's not stingy with the life that he gives. Many people today inside and outside the church view following God as being a downer to fun and freedom. I don't know if you've heard that talking to people about uh, maybe why they don't follow Jesus. Maybe people interacting who grew up in the church and they walk away from the faith, you ask them why. They feel like God's all about restriction. God's all about the things you can't do. Those conversations before people, I have, I mean, it's been kind of a controlling narrative in our, in our culture is we need to find ourselves by throwing off any sort of restraint. So people read the rules in scripture, they read the commandments, they read the Old Testament, they interact in church and they think, man, all God cares about is restraint. All he cares about is control. And so our culture tells us that to find abundant life is about removing all restrictions and to taste your heart, which is synonymous for feelings in our culture. And so following Christ becomes an obstacle because the God they heard about is one who cares about what they can't do. But Jesus tells us the opposite here. I mean, the rules, restrictions are meant to lead us to life. They're meant to help us to be people who are fully human. But Jesus tells us that following him is about self-denial, is about taking up our cross. But here he tells it to us in such a way that that leads to life. That leads to the thing that people are chasing. It leads to life. People who view Jesus as downer to fun and freedom, the one that wants to restrict and control, usually it's because they haven't explored the real Jesus or because they've heard about him secondhand or they grew up in a church culture that just really cared about control. And our sin nature wants us to believe that God is out to harm us. That's a part of your flesh, a part of your old nature, a part of your sin nature that believes that God is out to harm us. But God's commands are not to ruin our fun, but to help us to live as full human beings in freedom from what would stifle us and freedom to God. And so Jesus wants us to consider here who or what we follow and are they leading us to life. Verse 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came to have life, have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 12, the hired hand comes into the story. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, when they see the wolf coming, they leave the sheep and flee, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He lays out three options for us for, in our pursuit of abundant life, who we look to as shepherds. The first, the, the thief. The thief has the goal to harm and destroy you. It, it's kind of clear. You, you could, it's not hard to pick this one out of the crowd. The thief has the goal to harm and destroy you. Their goal is get what they could take. They break in. They come in through the window, over the roof. Some means it's not the door. And all they want to do is grab and run. Their goal is 100% evil for you. And in Jesus' mind, this was the religious leaders in John 9. The ones who were trying to out him as a sinner, to try and, and take away from his following that it was leading people to life. The ones that would have the man stay blind. I mean, Israel is a nation plagued by bad shepherds. Ezekiel 34 tells us this, verse 1 to 6. It says this, Ezekiel, an Old Testament prophet, prophesying about how they ended up in the exile because of bad shepherds. The word of the Lord came to me, 
Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak ones you've not strengthened. The sick you've not healed. The injured you've not bound up. The strayed you've not brought back. The lost you've not sought. And with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep the Lord says, were scattered. They wandered all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth and none to search or to seek for them. The, the religious leaders in the Old Testament, the religious leaders in Jesus' day were, were bad shepherds. They were thieves in Jesus' mind. The second group is hard to figure out. The hired hand. The second group were likely to follow the hired hand. This one's tricky because they look like the good shepherd until trouble comes. Verse 12 and 13 talked about this. They're not necessarily evil people, but they're more committed to their own good rather than the good of the sheep. And the, the good shepherd has a different care for the sheep than the hired hand does. Notice how they are marked by a lack of concern and compassion. They flee, they run because they do not care. In Psalm 23, verse 4, King David, we sung it earlier, he tells us that the Lord who's our shepherd, when danger comes, where's the shepherd? Side by side. You are at my side. In the valley of the shadow of death, you are at my side. The, the good shepherd draws near when danger is present. The hired hand runs away. He flees. The hired hand's someone who's paid to take care of you but doesn't really care, so when trouble comes, he splits. When the wolf comes, the hired hand picks up his robe in both hands, runs off as the wolf feasts on the sheep. So Jesus came to give abundant life, but so often we look for abundant life in things that we think will give us life, things that are thieves and hired hands. And what happens is that we're worse off because both those things want to use you for their own game. The thief is a thing you know is out to harm you. The hired hand is a thing that you think is serving your purpose but will leave you when danger comes. Think about anything you're currently looking to for life right now. Things you're looking to to fill your cup. Things you're looking to for joy. Your job, your family, your spouse, dreams you're chasing, drugs you're using, prescriptions you're taking, people you're flirting with. That thing you think will bring you abundant life. Is it trying to rob you and leave you empty? You don't think it is, because otherwise you wouldn't be looking there. You wouldn't be chasing it right now. And maybe it's serving your purposes right now like the hired hand, but you know that when trouble comes, it'll stick around. And so this passage asks the question, who do you follow? Who do you follow? Who is shepherding you? Where do you look to for life? And that's important because the Bible is more concerned about that question than we think about who we follow. Now, our culture is obsessed with leadership. Our culture is obsessed with what it means to be a leader. And leadership's good. We're given shepherds to lead us, to guide us, to, to help us to grow in faith. You know, every pastor elder is shepherding you in some way, shape, or form to help you to follow the good shepherd. Leadership's really important. It's a spiritual gift in the Bible. Romans 13 talks about it being a spiritual gift. 
that our modern world focuses so much on leading. Five tips to being a better leader. There's leadership conferences, leadership development processes. Uh, I, I bet, I haven't looked up, I bet a thousand to one there are books about leadership compared to followership. What it means to be a leader versus what it means to be a follower. To be a follower in our culture is a bad thing. But it all depends on who or what you're following. So Christian faith is built on being a disciple, being a follower, a learner, a student. And Jesus doesn't use the image of sheep because we're more helpless than we think. Sometimes people talk about the good shepherd here and talk about sheep, and they're like, well, you know, sheep are dumb, you're dumb, follow Jesus. That's, that's kind of the vibe sometimes we get with this. Rather, he used the image of sheep and shepherd because we are designed to follow as human beings. We're designed to follow. Now, before sin, it was, before Genesis 3, it was really easy to look to the Lord and follow him. And now our sin nature wants to follow anything we think will give us joy in this moment. We're designed to follow. He uses the term sheep not derogatorily, but positively. And our culture uses the word sheep derogatorily all the time to emphasize our free thinking and all that stuff. We're, we're not meant to be sheep. But our text highlights that we all follow someone or something. And so if we should have open minds. We should not just go with the flow of culture. Going with the flow of the world is a bad thing. But to think that somehow we're above influence, we're ignoring what the passage says. We're ignoring what the passage says. We all follow someone or something. Does that person or thing lead you to life or to death? And so disciples of Jesus should consider the question, who are you following? We all follow someone or something. And it's not just that, that some things are better than others. It's do we follow the good shepherd or not? And do those things we follow, do they help us to follow the good shepherd? It's a matter of life and death. The only option to find the kind of life we really need, abundant life, is to follow the good shepherd. And he leads to abundant life. He leads to green pastures. He restores our soul. He leads to eternal life with God the Father. How? Well, unlike the shepherds in Ezekiel who scatter the sheep. In Ezekiel 34, Jesus came to gather the sheep, to seek and to save the lost. He leaves the 99 and goes after the lost sheep, the one that's wandering off with the thief, the one that's in danger because the hired hand took off. And God didn't just point out the problem in Ezekiel 34. He didn't say, hey, here's the problem. Now figure out a solution. Ezekiel 34, he talks about the bad shepherds, but then he tells us in verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I, I myself will search out for the sheep and will seek them out. I promise, the Lord says, to search the sheep, to seek them out. And he does that in Jesus. He sought and continues to seek his sheep by sending his son so unlike the hired hand in the face of the enemy who runs, Jesus gets between the wolf and the sheep. For our good, he gets between sin and death, our true enemy, for our good. To lead us to life, he lays down his own. Verse 14. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must go. 
must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there's one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. Uh, verse 14, 15 recaps again his infinite, intimate knowledge that led him to lay down his life for the sheep so they could experience life with the Father. And in doing so, he looked beyond just his own nation, verse 16. Right? I have sheep not of this fold. I want to bring them in also. That's most of us. I don't know if you're Jewish in this room or not, if you're Gentile, but most of us probably are Gentiles. And this means he looked beyond his own people. He looked to us today in his work on the cross. His pursuit of the sheep was both exhaustive in that it cost him his life, and it was inclusive in that he brought people who were strangers to God, people as God's people and his promise, he brought them into his fold. The other sheep includes many of us in this room. His sacrificial love stretches across the globe because he be the fulfillment of the mission of Israel to be a light to the nations and God's promise to Abraham to be a blessing to the world, that there would be an offspring that would bless the world, and there would be one flock, one shepherd that goes beyond racial, cultural, geographical boundaries. And so he created this one flock under one shepherd who would listen to his voice, and he created them by laying down his own life. Jesus was cut off from his source of life. He was cut off like beautiful flowers. He was cut off from his source of life on the cross so that we could be brought back to God. Not only was his physical life cut off, but he expresses spiritual and emotional separation from God when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God's not content with planting dead flowers in the ground. Jesus himself was cut off from life so that we could have our sin forgiven, so that we could be a pleasing Sacrifice, so he could be a pleasing sacrifice to God and break the power of sin and death so we could be miraculously restored to our source of life. When we repent of our sin, when we cry out to God in faith, we get reconnected to God who gives life, abundant life, here and now, extending on forever. And so Jesus didn't lay down his own life for money, or what he could gain from us, but rather to gain for himself, for the joy set before me, endure the cross, to gain for himself a people of his own possession. He was full of sacrificial love. The hired hand bolts at the first sign of danger. The thief wants to rob you for their gain. The good shepherd lays down their life, thinking more of the sheep than themselves. And what makes Jesus infinitely better? Four times in our text we're told that Jesus laid down his life willingly so the sheep could have life. Verse 11, 15, 17, 18. Jesus' shepherding and, and his leadership are characterized by sacrificial love, and so when the wolf comes, Jesus gets between the wolf and the sheep to preserve and protect. And so on the cross, Jesus defeated the wolf of sin and death by laying down his own life so the sheep could be led to green pastures and salvation. He did not go to the cross because Pilate, the Roman governor, ordered his execution. He didn't go to the cross because of the religious leaders conspiring. Sure, those were means and methods. He went to the cross, though, because of our sin, because we were cut off from life, and so he laid down his own. That's why he went to the cross. His own authority, 
because of your sin, my sin. And he was looking the wolf right in the face, getting in between us and danger. So this is your good shepherd. This is the one that you're following. This is Jesus planting his flag in the ground, saying, I'm the God of Psalm 23 who leads you to life. Will you follow me? He's the good shepherd who leads to abundant life, away from the voice of the thief and the hired hands, the various voices in this world that try and pull us away, and his knowledge of you is infinite and intimate. His authority and love for you are sacrificial. Who are you following? What voice do you hear? Is someone who will truly be with you to the end? And have, or have you given your life to something else that wants to rob and take from you? That will run away at the first sight of danger. The good shepherd leads his people to green pasture, still water, to restored life. And that's the God he is. We pray. God, help us, Lord, to examine that question in our hearts, Lord. Who are we following? What are we looking to for life, God? Especially in times of turmoil and distress and danger. Who or what do we look to, Lord, for life? God, I pray that we could easily say, you. But we know there are distractions. We know that we have itching ears, Lord. We know that our sin nature wants to believe that you're out to harm us because the world, our flesh, and the devil want to try and separate us from you, even though it's impossible. This passage goes on and says that no one can pluck the sheep from your hand. But Lord, we can get caught up in distraction, caught up in sin, be left broken and hurt at the end of the process, Lord. And so help us now, God, is the thing that I'm looking to right now, a thief or a hired hand, or someone you appointed, Lord, to lead me closer and closer to the good shepherd who draws near in danger, who wants to um, wants us to know him and be known by him. And so we're thankful for your son, Jesus. We're thankful for your work. We're thankful for what you've done, that he loves and leads to life, abundant life, Lord. And so be with us, God, we pray in your son's name. Thank you.